Welcome back to the Trojan Talk podcast after a two-week hiatus. I'm Ryan Young, publisher of Trojansports.com. And we were, of course, off for the bye week, USC's bye week. And then Max Brown and myself had some scheduling conflicts, difficulties last week. So we just decided we'd roll it over to this week. But we are back. We are back strong. Max is on the show to talk about USC's matchup with Cal this weekend to break down the storylines of the week. A lot of talk about the receiving core, how they performed last week without Jordan Addison and Mario Williams. A lot of talk about the offensive line, how it performed without Andrew Voorhees. Caleb Williams talk, of course. Our weekly segment of Max Brown's favorite Lincoln Riley play call of the week from the Arizona game. That was a pretty good breakdown. You'll enjoy that. And then we get into some CFP talk, the college football playoff rankings. The first set came out on Tuesday. USC is number nine, and there is a path for the Trojans to make the playoff. It's a little complicated. It's a little convoluted. It's not going to be easy, but there is a path. And I've been surprised on the message board, on our Trojan Talk message board, at how many people are just satisfied with the progress already made this season and and just knowing this is just step one for Lincoln Riley in this program. And I totally agree with that. I mean, no matter what happens, fans should be beyond satisfied with what Riley's done in year one, restoring this program, turning it around in the blink of an eye. He's clearly exceeded all expectations for year one that anyone could have had or anyone should have had. But as long as the playoff carrot is out there, there's no reason not to talk about it. So it, it doesn't have to be a make or break for this season. I think it can be a success regardless. But let's not ignore it because it's out there, and you know that you know that it's in the back of Riley's mind and the, and the players probably. So Max and I talk about that briefly, but then I bring on my good buddy Brady McCullough from the L.A. Times, their college football writer extraordinaire, to get his take on the layout of the of the playoff picture where USC fits in it what has to happen for the Trojans to make the playoff a percentage chance that that he would apply to USC's hopes there so we just kind of spell out the picture you know just in case you want to kind of track what has to happen nationally and you want to keep that in the back of your mind but sure this is going to be a successful season regardless of what happens with the playoff and it should be a successful weekend for the Trojans going against a Cal team that has lost four straight games and just doesn't have the offensive firepower to hang with a team like USC is my assessment, uh, not to get ahead of ourselves here, but uh, we'll get into all of that. So that is our show, two guests, two great conversations, lots of analysis, lots of USC football talk. One last point to note before I forget, we've had some comments asking if there's a different way we can record Max's segment to improve the audio quality. Uh, I guess I just got used to doing it this way and really hadn't noticed an issue, but we had a couple comments on the last podcast. And of course, we record Max over the phone, which brings some technical uh, challenges, uh, especially when uh, our entire audio tech department is me. Uh, I have a lot else going on during the week, so I go with what I know, but I hear you. I appreciate the feedback, and I am looking into another way to take care of that 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 might produce a different audio recording of of his side of the conversation. It will take me a couple weeks to get that in place, so bear with me, 
Again, I've never noticed an issue. Certainly, you can tell that he's coming in over the phone, but it is what it is. But we will try some new things in a couple of weeks here that maybe will uh, will take care of any any concerns anyone has. But hopefully, you'll keep listening all the same because the content is the content. So with that, let's get into the show. All right, we're back on the Trojan Talk podcast after a brief hiatus over the bye week. I think it's been two weeks since our last show, but you know, even even podcasters need a midseason break. So we are back with Max Brown and his weekly appearance, the former USC quarterback, our Trojansports.com analyst on the show. Max, how you doing? I'm good, right? That's what, that's what bye weeks are for, right? A little, little, little recharge, reset. Let's get after the second half of the season. I feel recharged. I feel, you know, physically 100% again. No nicks or bruises at this point, so we're good to go. Been, uh, the trainer has been treating you well? It really did. It really did. Uh, the, the staff was excellent. Got me ready to go for this week. Excited for USC and Cal. We will break down that game. But as always, we start by looking back on the previous weekend as USC took care of business at Arizona. I was at the game, obviously. I've given my thoughts for the most part. But this is Max's spotlight. We want to start with your overall thoughts and takeaways from a game in which USC didn't have its top two receivers, didn't have two of its top three linebackers, was really shorthanded, didn't have its starting left guard, Andrew Voorhees, and yet got things done on the road in Tucson. What stood out to you overall, Max? The fact that USC was able to, to get a win in the first place. I thought uh, it was refreshing hearing Lincoln Riley talk about it. We had him on Monday night, and he was like, you can sense that that Arizona game was just one of those games, right? For them, it was obviously we're coming to town, which every team gets up for that. But then it's also had the whole Gronk situation and, you know, some of their homecoming and uh, an offense that had been ascending throughout the, the, the whole season. And that's just what got to me the most is, you know, that, that's a really good offense. And, yes, our defense gave up points. But to just find a way to win, those are the type of games that we've seen over the past four or five years where USC would find a way to lose. And then we'd be sitting here on this podcast all pissed and the, the message boards would be going wild. And I know people are still – complaining about you know some of the defensive things and 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 uh certain areas in that regard but the fact of just getting a win and holistically looking at the fact that we have a team that's number nine in the cfp rankings we're seven and one uh, a team that was four and eight and was a bad football team last year i think i i get a little uh a little peeve when the the frustration comes out from from fans in that regard because i think it's just you know those, those are the type of games that just find a way to win and move on. I think, I mean, I said it before, that's, that's a really, really good Arizona offense. They have three legit receivers. They have an NFL offense lineman, and Lincoln Riley said it on Monday night, that's the most elusive quarterback that uh, that they're going to face all year. I mean, I guess we'll see what happens in the playoff, but but all year in, uh, in, in Jaden Delora. I was impressed with the offensive line. I think we've been waiting for... I guess a lot of those starters, right, Voorhees and, and Milan and even Dietrich that we knew and, and Bobby Haskins being an older guy, because like we've had a lot of the same faces, you know, over the past, call it 18 months, and you're wondering, hey, who was that next guy going to be? And to start the season, you know, we have Jonah Monai coming on in a big way, and he's now, you know, you can make the argument that maybe the, the best offensive lineman that, that they have uh, on that team. And then now Mason Murphy stepping up. And I'm not saying it was groundbreaking, but you're seeing the next wave of, of guys. And to me, that's the sign of a great program as well is you always have the, the one or two guys waiting in the wings that you're able to, to bring, bring them along 
And before we know it, Mason Murphy's now, he's going to be the guy with experience. And you're bringing on the next batch of guys. So was impressed everyone stepped up. Just big picture. To get a win, to move on, and get to November in contention for everything is huge. Yeah, a lot to chew on there. Let's start with the offensive line. And I think that Josh Henson deserves credit for just what he's done with the main unit, but also what he's done developing guys. They've now started eight different linemen, which I think would have been an impossibility a year ago or a couple of years ago, as that depth just wasn't there. But obviously we had the two left tackles, you know, Cortland Ford and Bobby Haskins have each started games. Gino Quinones made a start at guard earlier this season, you know, kind of coming from the depths of the depth chart after being off the radar the last few years. And then Mason Murphy, a guy who missed most of his freshman season due to injury, due to foot injury, uh, you know, really stalling his development at a crucial time, is now, you know, halfway through his redshirt freshman season, a guy they feel comfortable starting. And like Lincoln Riley said, it wasn't perfect his play over the weekend, but it was encouraging. And he's the potential foundation piece when you look at okay, who's going to fill these voids when when all these guys leave in a year, when Bobby Haskins is gone after this year and Andrew Voorhees is gone and Brett Nealon is gone, how do you fill in the pieces? Well, we, we've, we've seen some of the answers to this point. And what I liked the most hearing was Lincoln Riley talk about the behind-the-scenes stuff and how the rest of the linemen made it like kind of their personal responsibility this year to bring Mason Murphy along because they all – we heard Justin Diaz talk about it. We heard Jonah Monaheim talk about it. They all see his potential and think that he has the talent to be as, as good as anybody uh, in that group right now over time. And so they took it upon themselves to really push him and bring him along. Monheim told the story after practice Tuesday that Justin Dietrich switched weightlifting groups way back back in, during the offseason program because he wanted to be with Mason Murphy and, and push him every day and help get him to this point. So, I mean, that speaks to the culture of the program. But it speaks to what Josh Henson is doing in that unit. And I think it is really encouraging that they could play a game without Drew Voorhees and, and have a game where Bobby Haskins left early and, and, and you get through it again and, and you put up a season-high yardage shuttle. Granted, against a, a very porous Arizona defense, but you play who you play and they took care of business there. I love that point about uh, the, the, the whole culture of that offensive line room because I think it's one of the most underrated factors of why this team is so good this year. And, hey, if there's a, you know, 30 for 30 E60 situation in five, 10 years about, oh, Lincoln Riley, the innovator of the transfer portal or something like that, like how quickly he was able to get things back on track. One of the most underrated factors is the offensive line room because you have so many of those guys that have been around a long time and guys that have received their fair share of criticism over the course of their USC career with respect to the run game and whatnot, but they're good offensive linemen. They're older, more mature guys. And, the fact that we really haven't had to have huge concerns at the offensive line, that's usually the biggest area when a new program comes in is, you know, guys transfer out, all that, and then you're weak at the offensive line. Hasn't been the case this year. And I think you're spot on in terms of that culture dynamic. I think it also comes out to me with, like, uh, with, uh, with Bryson Shaw at safety, right, when, when transfers come in and the fact that Lincoln's still able to have those guys buy in and not check out and everything's been cohesive. This whole culture thing, it's not a buzzword. It's uh, a huge factor why I see so good this year. Well, you just cued me up for my next point. Let's go to Bryson Shaw. Uh, another great story. A guy who transfers from Ohio State, where he started all but one game last year, 
I didn't watch him play last year, so I couldn't give you an evaluation of his play. But he played a lot for them. And he comes in in the summer here because of his connection with Alex Grinch, who had recruited him to Ohio State. He never played for him there because, obviously, things fell apart. Urban Meyer kind of disappeared. Grinch left for Oklahoma. But they had this strong relationship. I'll preface this by saying I'm doing a big story on Bryson Shaw and talked to his dad for like 45 minutes this week. So I have a little more perspective than normal on this one. And they just really liked Alex Grinch. So when they got in the transfer portal, USC became the the clear choice. And he comes here in the summer looking to compete for a spot and pretty quickly in fall camp tears his quad. This is coming from his dad who, you know, obviously maybe a little biased, you know, as, as any father should be. But he was just telling me how tough Bryson has been through his career and how he's never missed a practice. He plays through all kinds of stuff. He has this old lacrosse injury with his mangled finger that he just hasn't even gotten fixed yet. He just he doesn't want to miss any time. But you tear a quad, there's not much you can do. And he tried to come back a week later and set it back further. So you're now halfway through the season on a team that you just joined months ago and you haven't really played yet. And you have to be wondering, am I going to even have a role on this team because the guys ahead of me are doing well? And and that's what his dad said. He goes, you know, I would talk to Bryson, and he would go, well, I don't deserve to take anyone's spot right now because the guys ahead of me are playing well. So I just, I just got to keep working. Well, he keeps working behind the scenes. He gets healthy. And USC needs him last weekend due to the, the losses of the linebackers. They, they go with kind of a three-safety look for a lot of the game. Bryson Shaw comes in, has a – huge interception and his name Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Week and you just go up and down the line and that was the story of this game the linemen we talked about Bryson Shaw we just talked about and then the receivers and to think that you're going to play a game without Jordan Addison without Mario Williams and you're going to put up a season high yardage total that Caleb Williams is going to pass for a career high 400 plus yards 411 yards a second straight game with five touchdowns and no interceptions, and you're doing it without your top playmakers, I think that there was just a ton of positive to take away from that game. Even if the defense struggled, even if it was a closer than comfortable game against a not a great overall Arizona team, I just see the positives given the circumstances, and I think it was a very revealing game about where this program is at. I'm with you. I'm with you. It speaks to just the fact that you're like that's the type of guy in a different program that you lose, right? He, I mean, he, he checks out. He's not not available. I mean, let alone he tore his quad. The fact that he's still like healthy enough and he has the the, the quick t- twitch to to get after it's um, impressive. But no, I mean, Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Week deserves that honor. The biggest thing that, that for me, and it's a sign of 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 good coaching, which I know, hey, people are, are critical of Grinch, and, and I get it. You put it, you you give up almost forty points. But when you're having these new faces roll in and you're still able to have these exotic packages and exotic schemes where you, hey, you do have a safety at linebacker and you're not having, like, huge gaps and mishaps there, I think that that's, you know, that's obviously obviously impressive. And it's cool also because I try to, you know, go back to, hey, where was I at in, in August and where was I at this summer and the depth at some of these positions you were you were a little bit concerned about. And obviously it's showing up a little bit here as we get into November with injuries. But defensively, they continue to have guys step up and, uh, and like you said, be uh, become uh, ready to play. It'll be interesting to see, though, how does Shaw's role evolve from here, especially with Max Williams and, uh, and Bullock. Obviously those, those, those two rock-solid safeties were coming up against Cal, Colorado, the UCLA – Notre Dame after that, 
Cal, Colorado, and Notre Dame, certainly much more, you know, run-heavy attacks. I mean, UCLA is as well, but they're more spread open. I, I would, I would, I would bet that Shaw's role is not, not, a, not a ton against those matchups. Um, and if it is, that to me is concern against, you know, uh, those teams that have have stronger rushing attacks. So something to just to just follow. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's no telling uh, how much he will play from week to week, but it's it's the mentality instilled in this program is that when you know your time will come eventually and be ready for it. And let's go. I mean, we're going to talk more about the defense. So I'm not glossing over that at all. We'll get into that. But let's talk about more about the offense and the receiver situation. Again, it's, it's, it's all speaks to culture. You have two guys who easily could have checked out or having a foot out the door looking for their future. You know, we saw Gary Bryant didn't have a role through the first two or three games and was, was done. Was Red Shirton is going to enter the transfer portal, or that was the plan at least. We'll see after the season. And that is a common response in today's college football. All right, well, you have Kyle Ford, a redshirt junior, a guy who's been through everything you can imagine, two torn ACLs, one on each side, other nagging injuries that just he just can't seem to, to shake and, and get a, a clean runway of health to launch himself. And then when he is mostly healthy, I think he's, he's had some setbacks this year, but overall he was mostly not playing because of the, the depth chart. He, he was behind just really talented receivers and was – was just slotted down the depth chart. So now he's having to not only wait through injury uh, perseverance, but having to wait through, I'm not the guy on this offense, but I'm going to go to work every day and hope that my time comes. And it does, and he has six catches, 100-plus yards, and a touchdown in kind of that breakout game that all of us with Kyle Fordstock always knew was possible if he got the the volume of opportunity, but to to wait through everything he waited through for that, I think is uh, is a great story. And, and Taj Washington, a little different. You know, he was a guy last year. He was one one of the main guys. And what does Lincoln Riley and the staff do? They look at the receivers coming back and go, "Nope, we need uh, four transfers to come in." You're now playing for a different coach who didn't recruit you, a coach who has recruited four transfers at your position to come in and. He didn't balk. He didn't leave. You know, I, I certainly wrote him off, you know, after the roster roster shakeup and everything and thought he would not have a major role. And he waited his turn, and he played a little bit early. He found a niche as a, as a blocker and said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show out in this area that this coaching staff is demanding. I'm going to be the best blocker I can be, and I'll get my chances when they come. He gets the chance to be kind of the featured guy last week and has seven catches, 118, I think it was, yards, and, and two touchdowns. Just two great stories of, of guys. And I, I don't want to just completely just keep uh, kicking the former staff and former regime, but I don't know if we get all of those perseverance stories with the previous culture. I just don't think it was in place for that to happen across the board as it seems to happen with almost every player these days. I'm with you. The, the Taj Washington angle is my, my favorite this week for a lot of the points that you alluded to. But it was cool having uh, Lincoln Riley on Monday night. And you can tell they love Taj Washington. And he was extremely complimentary, um, going out of his way to highlight Taj. And it wasn't just, a, hey, I want to love up the guy who's uh, a carryover guy just to just to do it. It was, no, this guy's doing so much for us. All, like little nuances here and there. You mentioned the, the blocking role that he's carved out. And I think... You know, the 
we have the top three receivers as, you know, Williams, Addison, and, and Brennan Rice. But I feel like Taj, yes, he is like another small slot guy, but he's pushing for that, for that call it number three spot. And it was cool because when you watch the X's and O's, which I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit, but Lincoln is dialing up Taj Washington. It's not just a like, oh, he's the receiver in this spot, so he happens to get the ball and he happens to be fast and quick. It's No, there is a specific scheme where they're attacking one specific defender and Taj Washington is the receiver that they're electing to put in that spot. They could put any of the guys um, there and have him be the one-on-one matchup, but they're electing to have Taj. You can tell they have confidence with them. And if we're being truth-tellers, right, if you look at Taj Washington and Gary Bryant in the same lane, obviously they were. Bo- I would envision they were both given the same opportunity to rise. If you asked me back in January who I, w- who I would have picked in that matchup, I probably would have picked Gary Bryant, um, just given off yep. where he's recruited and, and some of the taller guys. And Taj Washington has found that niche, and Gary hasn't. And so I think it speaks to, you know, the, the approach that Taj had and some of the grittiest, gritty little nuance factors that that's what it's all about. It's not always about, hey, can you catch a go ball? It's about the little things to carve yourself a role. And that's going to be a theme in, in the years ahead with Lincoln in, in this offense is, we're going to see recruits come in here and not play right away. And we're going to see guys that might come, you know, be, be lower level recruits, carve a niche in this offense and in this defense. And it's on the back of little things like that. In years past, when the team wasn't as good, I think it was easy to gloss over those things and, and try to carve guys' roles and whatnot. USC is going to be at a point, if they're not already there, where if you aren't doing the things that don't show up on a stat sheet, you won't play. And so credit Tosh. Um, I think that role is cool. Kyle Ford, I'm, I'm with you there as well. And just big picture, 10 guys catch a pass when your top two receivers are out. That shows depth. I mean, that's just <laughs> – this receiver room is absolutely loaded. We've said that before. But it's uh, it's impressive that, hey, even though the skills there and everyone knows it, the fact that just the next man up mentality is true and, and no one's blinking an eye is – it's impressive, man. Yeah, and this this isn't the uh, Lincoln Riley weekly praise podcast, but uh, it kind of becomes that because I mean the results, the results, and he's turning this program around uh, in a blink of an eye. But I mentioned I talked to Bryson Shaw's dad for forty five minutes this week. I talked to other parents this year for feature stories, Brett Elon's father, others, and the way they talk about Lincoln Riley is just it's just unbridled appreciation and praise and and that of course comes from from their sons and and what the players themselves are saying but I mean Bryson Shaw's dad just went on and on and on about I mean this guy is just like he he is the way he deals with the players he's 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 transparent he's sincere you know exactly what you're getting he makes this immediate impression on people and you see that in recruiting but you see it in the way these guys are responding like we're talking about where if, if you go back and, and think, if, if you would just listen to everything Lincoln Riley has said in press conferences, he's been really transparent and really kind of laid out how he runs the program. And it's not been coach speak. It's not been palaver. It's, it's been kind of a blueprint for what we're now seeing, where he told us back in fall camp or maybe even the spring about the Hollywood Brown story, where Hollywood Brown, Marquise Brown, Oklahoma receiver, was on the scout team for half of his freshman season and all of a sudden has had worked his way up to get a chance and ends up with almost a thousand yards or over a thousand yards despite not playing the first half of the year and he, he's been consistent in saying 
it's a weekly evaluation. Everybody on this roster has the opportunity to change their role over the course of the season. And we've seen it. We see it with the rush ends where first it was Solomon Bird was third string and all of a sudden he's the star for a few weeks. But that doesn't guarantee him anything. Now it's Nick Figueroa who's getting those snaps because he was making the most of his opportunities. They are not beholden to anything or anybody. They are beholden to trying to win each week and playing the best guys. And that means that everyone truly has the opportunity to emerge if they're doing the stuff behind the scenes. And that's why you see a guy like Taj Washington buy in and say, okay, I'm going to block my ass off here and and that's my, my ticket to the field and we'll see where it goes from there. So I just can't say enough about the culture and it's not only what I see, but it's what I hear. And when you hear it from the parents who can be the first to be critical about things if it's not going their, their son's way, just this unilateral appreciation for the way the program's run, I think is very telling. One little note for me, just so it's not the, the Lincoln Riley uh, <laughs> Love podcast, is uh, <laughs> I like that point. And, or uh, listeners might, might have a few people rolling their eyes and whatnot. But something to note, too, yet all those receiving yards, all those points, SC still only has one catch uh, from the tight end in that game. And I know Josh Paulo, he's another guy that's carved out a little role there. But yeah. that is not normal for a Lincoln Riley offense. Keep that in mind as we evolve into this off season, and I know we got a lot, a lot of season and a lot of important games left, but that is not the norm. And so how this offense looks now with maybe a diluted tight end room, they have some good players, but Lincoln Riley is used to having a tight end on the field the majority of the time, if not an H back, that usage has been down. That in itself is not a, is not a huge surprise. What I think is a surprise is, Hey, when you have a week where your two top receivers are out, Hey, you might think that's a, that's a, that's a week where the tight end's role increases. Wasn't the case this this last week, and as a result, obviously, it leads to a, a Taj Washington and all these other guys getting some more more opportunities. Yeah, just to build off what I was saying, and that point you just made reinforces the point of listen, we're not going to force anything. We're gonna it's going to be spelled out for us what we should do, either who should play based on how they're practicing, how they're performing, or how we should structure things based on. You know, the personnel. We're not going to force anything because this is the way we do things. We're going to evaluate each week and go with what works best. And you can carry that down to the running backs where, you know, it's probably been a tough decision to tell Austin Jones, who had a few nice games early on, you aren't going to have a big role now because Travis Dye is just too good. And we're not here to worry about anyone's feelings or ego. Travis Dye is too good. He's going to play. Uh, so it just across the board, you just keep ticking off examples. Before we move on from the receivers, though, let's talk about what they should do moving forward when they have everyone back, and we don't know when that's going to be. The one area where Lincoln Riley is definitely not transparent is on injuries, and that's his prerogative. So that's not a, a criticism. That's you know a lot of coaches take that tact, and he certainly does. Where we just don't get a whole lot of updates or insight into where things stand. He said last week that they, they thought Mario Williams was going to play. That was kind of an end-of-the-week surprise for them that he wasn't ready to go. He went through pregame, just couldn't do it. So if, if he's back this week or if it's next week that both guys are back or whenever, when they're at full strength, how would you divide the rest of the targets beyond those two? And I'm going to just kind of lead with my opinion that 
I think Brendan Rice is really talented. I think we've seen it. I think he had some great plays in that game. Certainly that sequence of two catches down the red zone, including the acrobatic touchdown in the back of the end zone. But the reality is he had like 12 targets and caught five passes, and he's just not been a reliable target where you just know, okay, if this ball is, is in his uh, catch radius, he's coming down with it. He has not been that guy. I think Kyle Ford deserves – that role that deserves those snaps, those targets. He's not maybe the entirely the same athlete as Brendan Rice. He's not doesn't have the same top end speed, but ultimately it's about getting the job done. And I've said for years, I've been banging the drum on this podcast as I do when I have strong opinions about certain guys. And I think Kyle Ford has maybe the best hands on the team. Just what I've seen since he was a high school prospect. And at this point, that's what they need. They need, they need reliability because Caleb Williams is going to put the ball where it has to be. I would give Kyle Ford a bigger role at the expense of Brendan Rice when things are full strength. And obviously, I, I think Taj Washington has earned uh, his touches as well. But Max, what would you do? How would you evaluate that room at this point? Yeah, I still think obviously uh, Mario Williams, Jordan Addison, if they're healthy at full strength, they, they got to be. Yeah. They got to rewrite two guys, or like you said, Kyle Ford, Brendan Rice. They want more out of that position. I I go a little bit back and forth. I view Brendan Rice as a little bit more explosive than Kyle. I view Kyle as more of the, uh, I mean, they're both big body guys and both, you know, have no shortage of athleticism. Um, but I don't have a huge problem with, with, with what you said. Obviously, Kyle balled out last week. Where I go a little bit back and forth is if you're only going to have three receivers on the field, and it's funny because I'm going to contradict myself a little bit. But if you view Taj Washington as that third receiver, last year, like we saw with Graham Harrell, Taj did play on the outside. I'm not saying to do that every single play, but is there are there rules where if you don't feel like you're getting the maximum production out of the X receiver, and I don't know if that's necessarily route running, I don't know if that's drops, I don't know if that's blocking, I don't know if that's just confidence in the red zone that you can go up and, and throw a fade. Does Tosh Washington or does Amario Williams, who this is what he did at Oklahoma, does he start getting more outside receiver reps and then it allows one of these other guys in the slot to operate there and, and you get increased production there? I think we all obviously want that exposition to be the big body guy that we're used to at USC, Kyle Ford, Brennan Rice. But if it's not there for whatever the staff is saying, I think we're to the point in the season where you have so many receivers there's no reason to force it. All these guys are good, right? But it's, it's a matter of, okay, tap it into great and, you know, who's going who's gonna to show up every single play. Those are some of the wrinkles that I would think about. But even as I'm just talking out there, if I'm a defense, I always go back to this. I'm a defense. What scares me the most when I have to line up against USC? And the reality is it's one of the big body guys on the outside, and then it's both Mario Williams and Tosh Washington in the slot. Because at that point, I can't hide a linebacker in coverage. I have to have all my linebackers cover. I have to have all those guys have speed. And that, to me, is what scares me the most. And it's a lot of those wide-open four-receiver sets that I would keep uh, keep relying on if I see. Yeah, I think that's definitely their their strength is to go with the, with the four-wide looks. And we didn't even mention Kyron Hudson and Michael Jackson the third who have been playing well. And, and this gets back to the point that I always fall into. I, I know you can't. You can't feed everybody, and you have to you have to make some hard decisions at some point. But the talent's there across the board. I'm just saying that give Kyle Ford some run. I mean, he finally gets his opportunity, and he delivers in every way you want him to, to deliver. 
and we've watched Brendan Rice be up and down all season, make some great plays, but also have some have some drops, have some uh, contested catches he just can't win. I just want to see more Kyle Ford and see if, if maybe, sure, he doesn't have the same top-end athleticism, but he can do a lot of good things. Show me more of that. We'll see what happens. Um, all right. We talked about the offense, Max. This is the time of the show where we just turn it over to you. We turn the spotlight on, and you are going to give us your favorite Lincoln-Riley play call of the week from the Arizona game. The floor is yours. This one was easy. Tomatoes are right answer in this one because when you watch the game, there's one play call that came up twice. They resulted in, in, in both big plays to Tosh Washington at the exact same play call. It first happened at the end of the first quarter. The vertical route, Taj Washington on the right-hand side. It was a great ball by Caleb Williams, and it was really like one of the first first explosives in the game. And then it happened later on in the game, I believe it was end of third or fourth quarter, the touchdown by Taj where he cuts back against the grain and jukes the defender and gets in. And that's, that was really, it felt like what I thought was going to be the dagger at that game. But it's the same exact play call. The same exact play call, which is awesome because I think you know, coaches sometimes have a have a mindset when they call a play that they've dialed up for a specific week to kind of check the box and move on. I love offensive coordinators that don't do that. They say, hey, that worked. Obviously, the defense had problems with it. Let's go back to that play call. And, and what is it? It's a fake outside zone, fake run to uh, Travis Dye going left to right. And what that does is that puts pressure on those linebackers on that side to come up and respect the run. On the other side, so on the left side, you have Tosh Washington. He, he's going to come down and block a linebacker working left to right like he's blocking and, and getting involved in the run game. And then he's going to squeak out the other side to the right. So he lines up on the slot to the left, blocks down, and then he squeaks out on a vertical route down the right sideline. The receiver on the right, on the, the that's lined up on the right, he's running off and, and, uh, and taking the corner and the safety with him. So there's a vacated zone there. It's so simple. I've actually never – I hadn't really seen this concept from Lincoln, or, uh, but, and it was a, a little bit of a new wrinkle. And why it's unique is usually when coaches call this, if Taj Washington's going to run a vertical on the right, he'll just line up on the right, and he'll work down and block the safety and then, and then release, but he's always on the right side. It's just a little bit more functional that way. What's awesome about this, by him lining up on the left side, is the safety loses track of him, right? The safety on the on the, the, the run side, he's not even worried about Tosh Washington. He's like, hey, there's not even a guy coming my way. He has to respect his run. He's not worried about a guy on the other side of the football. Yet, with Tosh's speed, he's able to still put pressure on him. So you lose track of him as a safety. It's why Tosh was wide open the second time, and it's why the, uh, the track star for them, uh, their safety number five, got beat the first time. So... That play call, go back and watch it. It's cool. It looks like Taj is either like lined up on the right the whole time. He's not. They're faking the the run the, the the run blocking scheme, releasing him vertical. I had not seen USC use this concept all year. To me, and I asked Lincoln Riley about this on Monday. This was speci- specifically drawn up to beat Arizona, which is another sign of a great coordinator. Hey, if you're seeing a defense have a tendency or a is not adhering to a responsibility in a certain coverage, you know you're going to get a certain coverage on a specific play, dial up a scheme to specifically attack that. USC did that, and it uh, resulted in, uh, in two huge plays. And I'll be breaking it down uh, from a video perspective uh, on my Twitter here probably tomorrow. So look out for that video. I love it. I, I've wondered all year if Riley's been doing this for so long. Does he just have this – 
massive playbook where he just picks things each week, or is he still actively creating and and looking at new ideas and now you know based on personnel, based on matchup. Uh, so for you to kind of say that that was a matchup dictated play, I think confirms what what I thought is that he's just always thinking fresh and and trying to come up with new stuff. I, I guess that 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 play was also specifically designed for Taj Washington, you think? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm pretty sure, I mean, Addison and, uh, and Williams could have done it, but I, I think, Hey, like I said, these are the receivers we got left. Taj is our guy. I mean, in terms of who we, uh, who we, uh, who we like the most. And if Taj is going to be that blocking guy and that other slot receiver, like that's his role. This is a play that the whole scheme's dialed up to, fake block at the slot receiver and then release. So, yeah, I, I do think it was it was dialed up for, uh, for 16. Awesome. And, you know, certainly I've been very – I don't want to say critical. It's more just objective about Taj's game over the last year and a half and what I think he does well, what, where I think he struggles. And I just have not seen him as a downfield target, mainly because most of those were going to be 50-50 balls or contested catches, which he just – has repeatedly showed is not his strength, but certainly if you can get him some space downfield and and he has the speed to create that if it's schemed properly, then yeah, he, he can be that guy because because he can catch passes when he when he has some comfort zone around him when he's open, and and that's what he did Saturday. So credit to Lincoln Riley for identifying the potential of his playmakers and putting them to work as we continue the Lincoln Riley Praise Hour here on the Trojan Talk Podcast. <laughs> but no, we're, we're gonna we're gonna take a sharp a sharp left turn uh, in that regard and talk about the defense and back to back games allowing over 500 yards. The last time you and I talked, Max, we were coming off a really strong defensive performance and we were saying that we were believers in this defense. That belief, at least for the fans, has been severely shaken in the last two weeks, and I think there's real concern about whether this unit has lost its mojo, can get it back. Now, when you're playing without your best player in Eric Gentry, and you could argue, you know, Thule and Gentry and some others are in that conversation, but Gentry's a difference maker at what he does. We've talked about that uh, at length over and over again. When he's not out there, certainly it's a different unit. When you're down two linebackers and you're and you're adjusting your entire scheme, certainly things are changing there. But this defense has its warts, has its vulnerabilities. It really has to get back to what it was the first part of the season where those turnovers and those timely sacks were offsetting the busts and the and the gap breakdowns and, and the stuff that gives up the big plays. Because I don't think we're ever going to get this unit this year to the point where that doesn't happen. So it has to be offset with the turnovers and the opportunistic plays, which, you know, we you could say – is hard to depend on, except they were doing it for a long stretch of time. So I think it's still there. Uh, I think it's also why they've been very outspoken about the rush in position and not mincing words and saying, uh, Lincoln Riley said it last week plainly, he goes, that position in this defense has usually been much more productive and it has to be for us. And that's why they have not shown any patience with anybody. Solomon Bird had a great stretch, but he was not given any leash for that stretch. They saw Nick Figueroa making plays in his limited rotation role at defensive end and said, nope, we're going to give you a shot now. You're going to play almost all the snaps, see if you can do better. I think they realize that there is one formula for this defense to work, and it is we need 
to continue to be one of the national leaders in sacks, and we need to continue to be one of the national leaders in turnovers forced, numbers that have kind of uh, gone down here of late. Max, what's that to you about the defense, and what is your concern level about that unit at this point? What stood out is just the impact of, of no gentry. I mean, and, and you, you opened up with that. I think the rush end position is interesting because when we started the year, that was probably the defensive position that I was most confident in outside of just the offseason headlines with, uh, with, with, with Shane Lee that was getting a bunch of, a bunch of buzz in the middle linebacker position. But the fact that that is maybe the Achilles heel of the defense is interesting because last year I would say it wasn't specifically the rush end position, but that was kind of where, where Nick, Nick Figueroa was, was, was sorting out and USC fans, we didn't really know Solomon Bird, but obviously was a transfer, so you might have high expectations for him. And then obviously, you know, you had uh, Corey, uh, Corey Foreman as well, and you've had injuries at that spot. So the fact that that is maybe the weakness when, hey, we thought in the beginning of the year that interior defensive line would be a huge, um, a huge issue, especially moving into November, that to me is just interesting. But that, that linebacker position to me is noteworthy um, because both those guys, or that position will impact both the run game and the pass game. We always love up Gentry in terms of how he's impacting the pass game, but it's also the run game that you're seeing against uh, an Arizona team that's able to rush for 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 a buck sixty, and it's not necessarily an elite rushing attack. What I do think is encouraging. Still love the way the corners are playing in terms of locking down those guys, and it, it's interesting. I'd be I haven't really dove in enough to get a sense of uh, of. Uh, you know, that the safety position and how Caleb Bullock is really impacting the game because I think, you know, Max Williams, I still feel a little bit like he's out of position at that, at that safety, at that safety role. Like he's built like a true nickel, but obviously they're asking, they're asking him to be a, a, be a legit safety. Caleb Bullock, they love his NFL, NFL ceiling and whatnot. But when I watch these games, I don't get the sense that those safeties are really impacting the game. And it's something that you can, you can really hang your hat on on the defense. I do get that sense at the corner position sometimes. I do get that sense at times at games with some of the, the, the pass rush schemes that we have. The safety position, yes, I know Shaw you know, stepped up last week, but that whole group, how they evolve in November, it'll be interesting to see. I also get back, though, and it's going to just add on to this, this love fest. But that, that, those receivers are legit. So it's a, it's a tall task for a defense that is facing injury. Um, that offense to me is one of the better offense that, offenses that we've seen all year. So the fact that you give up 37, I'm with you there. The, the, the concern more is that, hey, you, you faced a Utah team that you gave up 15 catches to the tight end. You would think that you can adjust at some point in the game. That to me is more of a concern than giving up 37 to an Arizona team, um, which might come as a surprise, but that's, uh, that's how I view those two factors. No, I think that's a good point for sure. And I think the defense has a prime opportunity to get right the next two weeks against two really struggling offenses. And we'll get into the matchup with Cal. But Cal and Colorado are maybe two of the most moribund offensive teams in this conference. So uh, this would be a, a key stretch for Alex Grinch to rebuild some confidence within that unit. Uh, I have not lost faith in the defense overall, being able to do what it needs to do down the stretch I think it's gone through a tough stretch I think it's missing key guys I think it needs to make some adjustments I don't think it will ever be great against a quarterback like Jaden Delora who can who can uh, just 
freelance and create, you know, same as Cam Rising. I think that those guys are going to victimize this defense over and over again, and that's just going to be a bad matchup when it comes. But I still think this defense can do enough to continue giving USC what it needs to close out the season. That's really all I have to say on the defense, but I, I realized, and and this is almost this is almost symbolic, that we talked all about the offense and I didn't ever really spotlight Caleb Williams, who I mentioned in, in passing uh, had a career-high passing yards, over 400 yards, and his second straight game with five touchdowns and no interceptions, despite the, the personnel changes we mentioned. I'd be remiss if I didn't get your take on Caleb, Max, and, and what stood out to you. And Lincoln Riley talked about how sometimes maybe when you don't have your top two targets and you really have – you don't have that guy that you're, that you're used to feeding – and you really have to just take what is there, take what the defense gives you. Maybe you play a more efficient game sometimes because you have no kind of preset inclinations uh, before the play of, of what you want to do or where you, where you want to go. What stood out to you about Caleb Williams? Because he certainly deserves a spotlight. And I say it's symbolic that I overlooked him because I think that it's easy to take for granted what he does because he's just he's at such an elite level so often. Certainly there's been a few hiccups here and there, but he's kind of normalized playing – at this level, that it doesn't become the storyline of the game, uh, even on a, on a Saturday when he doesn't have a, a full arsenal at his disposal. What did you like about Caleb's play? No, it's a good point. I mean, we definitely definitely take it for granted. I think it's it's spot on at you know the, the two thirds mark of this pod that we hadn't even mentioned Caleb, and he's the best player on this team, and he's uh, he, he's playing like it. And, and to me, it's it's the consistency that jumps out, and the fact that he was able to do it on the road. I think when you look around the conference. Okay, Michael Penix Jr., really good quarterback. Cam Rising, really good quarterback. Dorian Thompson-Robinson, really good quarterback. Bo Nix, really good quarterback. But all those guys have struggled at some point this season on the road. And it's not a, hey, I'm showing up every every single week, and it's it's the same machine no matter where I'm playing and, and that whole deal. Versus Caleb Williams, it is the same machine. I mean, he, he's consistent. Yes, this is a defense that was down, but... He throws 41 times. He, continue, he continues to stay efficient, over 400 yards, five touchdowns, and again, no picks, which is that's that's how you get upset. That's how you get beat is if you're throwing picks. So the consistency is there. I think it's it's fun for like Pac-12 talk shows to talk about, oh, who's the best quarterback in the league, especially because Bo Nix is really ascending. And yeah. Two weeks ago, DTR was the guy. I know there was the LA Times article about DTR and Caleb. To me, it, Caleb is the best quarterback in the conference. It's one, and then it's the other guys. And hey, those other guys might still be really good. I'm not saying that. Bo Nix deserves a ton of credit. But it's a different level when you're talking with Caleb Williams, especially because like, when you look at it through the lens of projecting to the next level and how much Caleb is responsible for driving the car of this offense and just how efficient, yet explosive, and yet there's no turnovers. It's, it's you know, exactly how you drive the, uh, the quarterback position. Yeah, I think if you ask an NFL top talent evaluator who's the best quarterback in the Pac-12 right now, it's it's a one-man conversation of, of who they're keyed in on. Fortunately, USC fans get to enjoy this for another year. And it's not just a, a short-term uh, rental here with Caleb because uh, I think he's going to get better and better. And to your point, yeah, aside from the Oregon State game, he, he has brought it everywhere. I mean, he brought it at Utah. He, he brought it at Arizona. So uh, he deserved his little spotlight there. Not that he needs it from us, but we uh, remiss on our part if we didn't do it. Let's turn the page, and we're going to talk about the Cal matchup. But real fast, I want to get your thoughts on the, the first CFP rankings that came out Tuesday. USC is nine. Uh, a lot of Pac-12 
representation there. Oregon's eight, UCLA is 12, Utah 14, and Oregon State crept into the back end of the top 25 there in the CFP rankings. But uh, we're going to have the LA Times' Brady McCullough come on next segment as they tease at the top of the show, and he'll really break down the scenarios. But just general reaction, Max, what did you think about the rankings, and 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 do you have any thoughts about USC's chances to rise up and, and challenge for one of those top four spots? I was pleased with the rankings. I thought they would be nine. They ended up at nine. I know there was a pool of people that thought they would be lower and get punished for the um, lack of – you know, legitimate win and where that would net out. And so nine feels appropriate. I think it's really encouraging for USC that you have Oregon at eight and you'd like to think if things keep chipping along, you'll play Oregon in, uh, in, in Las Vegas here a little bit. UCLA still at 12. Utah, Utah sticks out. Um, Utah and Oregon State actually stick out the most because Utah at six and two, they're the second best six and two team. So they're getting the nod above a Penn State and above an Oklahoma State and above a Syracuse, which those are going to be potentially quality wins for guys that for teams at UCLA is competing down the road. So the Utah component is not uh, is is something worth highlighting. And then Oregon State, Oregon State coming in at twenty three. The AP poll had them sneaking in this past week, I believe, at twenty five or twenty four. But the fact that Oregon State's at 23, keep your eye on the Beavers because they have Washington this week. That, to me, is the best game in the conference this week. If they take care of business against Washington, that's a quality win for them. And then they have Cal and they have Arizona. And then, so like two winnable games there. The Beavers could sneakily be a nine-win team or at least still playing for a conference uh, a conference berth against – or a conference title berth, a backdoor conference title berth. Don't get me wrong. But against Oregon late in the season, if they were to take care of business there, even if they were to lose to Oregon, that's still a ranked Oregon State game, which is a quality win for USC. And, hey, we all know the deal. If it gets to a point where you're having to split hairs and USC is like a four, five, six range – Every every added element matters. So that Oregon State getting a nod uh, ahead of some of those teams, and they have a pathway to to keep getting wins that could uh, could be advantageous for USC. Good deal. Well, we'll get into it more with Brady McCullough in the next segment. But want to get your thoughts there. Let's close with Cal and this matchup. Cal has certainly struggled. Has lost four straight now. You know, they're a, they're a decent defensive team, as you would expect from a Justin Wilcox Cal team. And they have offensive talent. They they do. I, I like Jack Plummer, their quarterback. I You know, Jade Knott was, was a national sensation early in the season when he went for 274 and three touchdowns versus Arizona and just had a string of highlights the first few games. I think defenses have really keyed in on him since then. But at, at receiver, you know, J. Michael Sturdivant, David Anderson, Jeremiah Hunter when he's healthy. They have the talent. Their offensive line is a sieve, and they have tried to shake the whole thing up. I mean, middle of the season, they they switched every position on the line almost, and just moved guys around, sub guys in, tried to give it a fresh look. They lost Matthew Sindrick, their starting center, for the rest of the season, and the depth is just not there. So that's the concern here but you know what i'm not the analyst you are max what jumps out to you about cal and this matchup for usc well you should be the analyst because i didn't even realize uh matt Cindric was out for the uh out for the season that kid went to my high school so i've been following him for uh for a little while and i mean that is a huge loss for cal that's an offensive line that is 
It's a bad offensive line. They've been struggling all year. Cindric was their one bright spot, had almost 35, 40 starts. The fact that he's out, I mean, that is probably an absolute nightmare for, for Bill Musgrave, their, their offensive coordinator. But, but you hit on it. Um, Jay Knott is a stud. Uh, true freshman, running back for Cal. Pac-12 freshman of the week early on in the season. Conference player of the week, he, he's a stud. The only reason his production's dropped is, is because of the offensive line's play. It's a group that's struggling. You highlighted the receivers. I actually really like their receivers. Jeremiah Hunter, um, J. Michael Sturdivant, and then Maven Anderson. Maven Anderson's the guy that's seen an increased role the past couple of weeks, but this is no slouch. The, the, these Cal receivers, I mean, they're not as good as the Arizona receivers, but they're, uh, they're a really strong bunch. And, and it's funny, and I think Cal speaks to a little bit about how the conference has leveled up in that, hey, we're, we're saying Cal is, uh, is a bad football team or not a great football team. But don't get it twisted. Jack Plummer, if you leave receivers open and with the, with, the, with, with the receivers that he has, he'll make you pay. This isn't like some guy who can't get through progressions or anything like that. Plummer can sling the rock. He just hasn't been given the opportunities. I think the uh, the offensive scheme has, has struggled a little bit, and obviously the offensive line's handicapped him. And, and Jack Plummer, he's a tough guy, man. He's He's been taking a beating uh, all season with some of their struggles. But I say that, hey, if, it's, if this uh, USC defense doesn't come to play, there's enough talent on this roster, um, especially at uh, at the skill players, to, uh, to to give you fits. And, and they showed that. I mean, they scored 50 against Arizona, which again, Arizona's a bad bad defense, but they at least have talent on that team. Defensively, Justin Wilcox, obviously our former defensive coordinator a few weeks ago or a few years ago, Peter Sermon, former linebackers coach when I was at uh, USC. This is a good defense. I think they've fallen guilty of hey, they have really strong stretches of time, but their offense continues to struggle so much, the defense kind of wears down. That's certainly been their their MO. Um, But uh, they're still trying to figure out defensive line. They're thin at the defensive line, so this could be a Travis Dye game. Um, They've had to shift some linebackers and, and make them more permanent defensive lineman. Linebacker, they're solid. Jackson Sermon, Peter Sermon's son, is the middle linebacker. Had a ton of production with former uh, former middle linebacker at Washington the past few years. Now at Cal, and then in the secondary, um, just 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 solid across the board. Nothing that uh, really scares you. And obviously, any time that uh, a secondary goes against SC, they got to uh, they got to come ready to play. But to me, it's all about the trenches, offensive line wise and defensive line wise. Cal can struggle there. It's a matter of uh, getting after both of those groups. Is there any part of this matchup that USC should be most concerned with that if this game is going to go uh, an unexpected route, it's going to be because of this, because of X? Probably their passing game. Probably their passing game. Yeah, if the secondary for SC doesn't show up and they're not, and SC's not able to get pressure, I think it's easy to just say, oh, you know, Cal's offense, they haven't put points up. Oh, they must struggle. Their, their offense sucks. If you turn on the film, like Jack Plummer has the capability to beat you deep. And these receivers, they're athletic. They can make some big plays. Um, I remember the storyline when I was doing some of my Sirius XM work was um, you get the Cal beat writers on or say, hey, these are NFL-level receivers. Well, that's what the, the beat writer was saying. But even if you knock that down a notch and it's just, hey, these are really good college receivers, I, I certainly think that uh, that exists. And it will be interesting to see – if you're Alex Grinch, if you do allocate more resources to Jaden Ott, which I don't think you really will because I don't think you fear the offensive line, but if you are allocating more resources to stopping Jaden Ott, which some teams did early on in the season, does that leave you more susceptible to the passing game? And should Cal somehow have 
USC's offense or USC's number in that game. Maybe it leads to more explosive plays. But the uh, the passing game in terms of the skill there, I think they have that. They have a skill to not back down to SC. It's just a matter of whether or not their uh, their scheme can uh, can show out against this matchup. USC fans may or may not remember that last this time last year when USC was scrambling to find a running back in the 2022 class before Lincoln Riley came in and, and had uh, Riley Brown in his grasp uh, within days. They made a late offer to Jaden Knott and just never really got any traction there. Um, couldn't pry him away from Cal. But a, a nice showdown of Norco running backs, both Travis Dye and Jaden Knott from Norco. So we'll see which one of the Norco backs uh, comes out on top this weekend. Max, as we always do, we close with predictions. I'll let you lead it off this time. What is your prediction for Saturday? Prediction for Saturday, I'll go I'll go 45 to 24 USC. I think the defense plays better. And hence my earlier comments. I think Cal's still able to put up some points. I think the defense plays better causes a few turnovers, but uh, enough big plays to at least put up points for Cal. But again, USC takes care of business, and they take care of business of this lighter stretch that they're on right now as we head into the back end of the season. I agree. I'm going to go USC 38-21. to 21. I think this game is, is uh, not very tense at all and that the offense just wins out and – the uh, the line issues that you mentioned for Cal loom large and, and become the major factor in this contest. So, predicting a Trojans win as I seem to do every week. You were you were spot on with the uh, pick of Utah a few weeks ago. We didn't have a pot after that, so I didn't get uh, my brownie points for the the, the pick them. I right. I haven't forgotten. I'm giving them to you now. <laughs> but uh, but this should certainly be a USC win. There would be a major shock if it wasn't. We will come back next week with Max and break down this game and do all the analysis in our, our Lincoln Riley play call of the week segment as always. So check back next week, but uh, Max, we appreciate the time and the, and the insight. Always fun. Thanks Ryan. Okay. As promised next into the show, back into the show, friend of the show, Jay Brady McCullough of the Los Angeles times, the times college football experts, for lack of a better term. Is that, is that your official title, expert? <laughs> I think we need to find a better term, okay. at least one that's more accurate. Um, but uh, I do love I do love the sport. It's not all I can think about. I don't know if it makes me an expert. Well, it is it's your passion and your overwhelming interest in all things college football that has you on the program today because we're going to break down the first CFP rankings. And specifically, we're going to break down if USC has any chance to crack into that top four, and if so, what is that chance? But let's start more generally, Brady. What was your overall takeaway to the reveal on Tuesday night? Any major surprises? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, the, the the most interesting thing going into it, I mean, I, I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about who's going to be number one. Uh, you know, I think Tennessee certainly earned it, and that, I kind of assumed they'd go that direction. Uh, no other reason than to mix it up and generate you know, something different, and, and they've earned it. Um, it was more like, yeah, what are they going to do with Clemson and TCU, which was also kind of the, the thing I think USC fans, other than knowing where USC was going to land, that would have been what I would have been looking for too because 
you know, those are the two schools that really, I think, yeah, they're both undefeated. Um, they're both, you know, certainly in position if they went out they're they're, you know, because they're power five, you know, uh, undefeated teams, you know, we feel pretty dang good about getting in the, in the playoff, but they're also the two teams that I think USC fans could look at and say, yeah, if we played against one of those teams on a neutral field, yeah, we'd feel pretty good about our shot, you know, to shoot our shot and, and knock one of those teams off. They're not, they haven't been dominant. Some of these other teams have been dominant, uh, throughout the season, obviously, you know, Tennessee, Ohio state, Georgia, Michigan, those are the teams that have actually looked dominant throughout, throughout the first you know, nine weeks of the season for the most part. So Clemson and TCU, and, and then seeing that, that Clemson was placed above Michigan, and that's not even you know factoring in, sure, like I'm a Michigan alum, and I, I, I definitely root for the Wolverines um, more than I probably should in my, in my role, but I can't help it. You know, but it's, it's just who, who has watched Clemson and thought that they were a dominant football team this year more than the four teams that I mentioned before. Yeah, they, they've cobbled together some, some wins, uh, you know, tough. You know, that they, they had to battle for against Wake Forest, uh, Syracuse, you know, teams that were dropped at the end of the rankings in the, the 20s there. You know, beat NC State, which I don't think is any, any great shakes. Yeah, so that, that was a surprise. I'm not sure what, what they're seeing there with Clemson, but I also think that's one that, that'll, get, that'll get sorted out. And I, and I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, uh, undefeated Clemson's getting in the playoff either way. So if they lose, I think they really – I think they, they definitely shouldn't make the playoff. I think the committee would ultimately get there depending on what else happens. TCU, good wins, some really nice wins, a nice, you know, collection of, of top 25 wins at the time those games were played, exciting brand of offense, quick strike offense that – it's like they don't want to score unless it's a you know fifty yard pass or, or run even. Um, I'm rambling here, but that, that's what I was looking at, and I think it TCU certainly looks like if they lose a game, USC doesn't have anything to worry about there. Clemson, you know, they, they're giving them a little more respect than I would have liked, but I still feel like uh, USC has the opportunity to roll off significant wins at the end of the season that would put them over a one loss Clemson. Well, I definitely am not a CFP expert, but I spent time breaking down the things from a USC standpoint after the rankings came out. And let me bounce off you my initial takeaways as it relates to the Trojans and see if I'm on base or off base here. And then we'll get you to kind of give your most realistic path for USC to have a chance. But it seems to me, first assumptions, there's going to be two SEC teams and there's going to be the Big Ten winner in, in the top four. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Now, building off that, it would seem the worst case scenario f- for a USC fan is to have some kind of SEC quagmire where either Tennessee or Georgia, whoever reaches the title game, then loses to Alabama, leaving three one-loss teams, all with deserving cases. Is, is that a fair assessment, and is there a possibility that the committee would put three SEC teams in? I mean, the SEC gets a lot of love. I think that if USC, here's what USC really needs to happen to eliminate that as a potential quagmire. They need, obviously, to win out. They need Oregon to, to continue doing what they're doing, beat Utah, win at Oregon State, and not do what normally happens in the Pac-12 this time of year. We know what usually happens is that 
some of these teams will pick up a random loss uh, that they shouldn't pick up, and then that demeans the other contenders that are still alive, that demeans their eventual chances to beat those teams. So, for instance, USC needs Oregon to be number five, number six, whatever it can be, and still with that one loss and building all this momentum and chatter about should the Ducks be in, should the Ducks loss in the game game one still be overlooked, uh, you know, be overlooked by against Georgia. You know, they need all that debate, they need all all this buzz about the Ducks, and then USC beats Oregon, and coming off of wins over a theoretically top ten UCLA a you know resurgent seemingly improving Notre Dame team that's always going to get buzz anyway if they win that game that'd be a heck of a way to end the season and I think the USC gets in over one loss Georgia or one loss Tennessee that isn't the conference champion you know I think that the SEC will shake itself out I, I can't see there's too many good teams there's too many teams with a shot uh, from around the country right now to think that the SEC is going to get three. Okay, so we'll, we'll assume it gets down to two there. Is there any chance that the winner of Michigan-Ohio State does not then win the conference championship game? Well, there's a chance because, you know, Illinois has got a really good defense and a strong run game. I mean, they're I guess you could call them at this point, and they'll have a chance to prove me wrong, but you call them kind of like, you know, Michigan light, you know, in the way they're built. It certainly worked out well for Michigan last year against Ohio State. You know, strong running game, defense that finds a way to get off the field, ball control, punching Ohio State in the mouth, you know, assuming it is Ohio State that Illinois would be playing there in the Big Ten Championship game. So it's, it's, it's not like out of the realm that Illinois could be one of those teams. But, yeah, you got to assume that the Ohio State-Michigan winner, that they don't, that they don't, they don't trip up elsewhere – and they're they're in there. They're locked in. Okay, so USC is at nine now. We're crossing off one of the three SEC teams ahead of them. We're crossing off one of the Big Ten teams. That's two. As you mentioned, they're going to need Clemson and TCU to both lose. You don't see any way that a one-loss USC team with the momentum you just mentioned could happen would usurp one of those teams. Uh usurp a undefeated uh, Clemson or undefeated TCU? Right. Uh, yeah, that's. I think that's going to be tough. I mean, I think that an argument could be made. You know, you look at, you know, the way that they'll finish, the, the draw of the USC, um, you know, getting back into the playoff and you want a Lincoln-Riley. You know, at the end of the day, we have to remember they, these people are essentially just putting together a TV program that they think is going to, you know, bring in a lot of ads and, and a lot of audience and um, and build up the, the buzz of the, of the game. And, you know, as much as, of course, I think that that's not the priority, I think that we can't ignore that that's what this is. They're, they're literally putting together TV programs, you know, in these games. But, no, I don't think they would jump on I, I think TCU could be a little nervous because they're sitting there at seven with the Pac-12 guys. They're right behind them in the rankings. TCU isn't going to have a finishing slate like USC would have as far as potentially beating two top 10 teams plus Notre Dame uh, in the final three weeks. So, so there, there's a world in which USC, you know, as, as the Pac-12 champ and with the only loss coming on the road 
as we all saw in Utah with a two-point conversion in the last minute. I mean, that's a heck of a way to lose. Um, you can't get any more good loss points, you know, than that. So, yeah, I guess there's a scenario where you, and you could see USC possibly jumping a undefeated TCU, but, but probably unlikely. I also find it unlikely TCU makes it all the way through without losing. And then uh, Oregon's the only other team ahead of them. Of course, USC would need to be in the championship game, would need the chance to beat the Ducks. Or if the Ducks pick up a second loss between now and then, that would take care of them. So it really comes down to then Clemson finding a way to stumble over these next few weeks where they have, let me call it up, they have a road trip to Notre Dame, a feisty Louisville team, a capable 5-3 and three South Carolina team, and then the ACC championship game. So there's potential there. So it, 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 when you break it down like that, it's not unrealistic that USC, if they take care of business, could have their shot. Yes, this is totally feasible. And they may not even. They may not. You say Clemson finds a way to just keep pulling it out of their, you know, fannies. And uh, this is a family program here. And, uh, it's really not, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> Even if Clemson goes unbeaten, they figure out a way, um, and they're that third team, you know, Big Ten champ, SEC champ, uh, Clemson. Uh, even if that four spots sitting there, TCU's out of the way, Oregon's out of the way, and you're looking at one loss USC. USC, let's not forget that. USC, one loss a one loss by one point on the road in a tough environment where you kind of lost the lead late and you've come off three straight big wins, I think the committee would have a real hard time keeping them out um, over, uh, you know, the, you know, whoever, whatever SEC team has one loss and is sitting there. You know, I just think, if USC takes care of business, I think they got a pretty good shot. Which brings us to the last point, which is that part of the equation. And you've been following this Trojans team closely all season. Of course, what chance do you give the Trojans to close out that hypothetical path we just laid out and take care of their end of the bargain? Well, you know, Let's be realistic. I, I mean, not a not a great, not a good chance, a a, re, a realistic chance, but I wouldn't say a good chance. I think that they're the injuries are catching up with them. Their lack of depth on defense, particularly with the injuries. You know, this this program is is so far ahead of schedule culture wise, um, but that culture and that all of that stuff is still being built, and it's. So, I mean, God, if they're able to win at UCLA against a very experienced uh, program that, that has whatever you say about Chip, uh, wherever you stand, what he's built and the culture that he's built has now been there for, for five years. It, it, they're entrenched in his ways, and his ways are very uh, proven. Uh, especially now with this run UCLA's on, they they work. You know, the the win the day, the whole thing. Like it, you know, he's he's got it going. So to go in there and win a a tough road game, even at the Rose Bowl, which you know I think they'll have a good crowd for that one. And you go in there and beat a team that I think is pretty well built, pretty well, you know, a little more 
you know, traditionally balanced anyway than I think USC is. Um, I mean, I still put that base. That game to me is a toss up. You know, it's a, it's basically a toss up. And then Notre Dame, yeah, okay, they've had a tough time this year. Freeman getting things going, but they've been a better team uh, with the with the backup quarterback and running the ball and having an identity there, playing through that amazing tight end, Mayer. You know, defense seemingly improving week to week. Um, I mean, that's a rivalry game. That I mean, that's going to be a battle. If we, if any USC fan thinks that isn't going to be a a four quarter game, then they're kidding themselves. I, I'm not going to call it a toss up, but I'll give it a sixty forty USC. And then Oregon, the hype is there right now. They they really are. They are clicking, and Bo Nix. Um, wow, I mean. Very, very impressive, and, and definitely makes you wonder how it didn't work out with him and Gus Malzahn. It seems just like he was made to be a Malzahn quarterback. It's very, so it's shocking. But yeah, I mean, I think we look at the way the teams are playing, looking at the way we know Oregon's been recruiting at a higher level than USC on the West Coast for three, three or four years now. Their roster is just in better shape. They're deeper. They're they're just roster wise, they're just a little closer. Uh, to I think where USC uh, it wants to be I think in the next year or two. So so yeah I think you know the Oregon maybe then we put that one at seventy thirty. You know Oregon. So yeah you're on the probabilities on all those and you you, you multiply them. You know I, I think you're probably looking at somewhere like okay what are the odds USC does this? Well you know twenty percent. Uh, I don't know I didn't run the math but. Um, yeah, it's but it is possible. Of course, it's possible. USC has Caleb Williams and Lincoln Riley and a lot of really good football players that are that are believing in what what's happening. So yeah, long, long way of saying this could happen, but it's not likely. And you didn't even, didn't even mention the Colorado game, which you know you just can't assume anything. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's the second bye week that we're all looking forward to. No, I think you, you laid it out well. I think UCLA is a particularly tough matchup, given what we've seen from this defense against mobile quarterbacks, against um, multifaceted rushing attacks. I think that you have to worry about that. And then you, you apply that, and I would say even more so, to Oregon. I, I don't know that any Pac-12 team can beat Oregon right now the way they're playing. They've just been dominant. They have – one of the best rushing attacks in the country, but they also throw the ball really well. The defense hasn't quite been there, but I, that is a tough matchup for USC's defensive liabilities. So both of those games, I think, are at the best toss-ups and, and maybe even favor the other direction if you really scrutinize the matchup. So I agree with your assessment. It, it is, uh, it's probably a long shot, but there's a chance, and that's the fun of college football is extrapolating and keeping hope alive until the very last second. And for USC, hope is alive and well. Brady, we appreciate your analysis and insight. I'm sure we'll revisit this topic over the next few weeks. Yeah, I hope so, man. I uh, All I know is I I really, really, Oregon is, it would just be fun. It'd be really fun for college football fans and West Coast fans and, and USC fans just to, just to see. You know, it's just to see if USC could could match up with Oregon on a neutral field uh, on that Friday night in Vegas. That that would be that would be a lot of fun. We already saw UCLA play Oregon 
I mean, uh, neutral field, maybe it goes a little differently, but, but I think everybody wants to see USC Oregon. So hopefully, hopefully USC can, can find a way to, to get there. Yeah, I think the conference needs to improve for that too because if that's not the championship game, I think it hurts both teams. If USC is having a rematch with Utah or UCLA in the championship game, that's not going to carry the same oomph. I guess maybe if they avenge the loss to Utah, that that can be framed as a compelling storyline for a one-loss team that avenges its only loss. But for for Oregon, if, if they're not playing USC, uh, I think that hurts their – their chances the same way and, and, and the Ducks do still have uh, Utah and Oregon State to get through if I recall correctly so it, it's no guarantee but that's certainly the matchup that the conference should be hoping for because it gives either team their best shot at vaulting to that top four now are you saying that George K is gonna gonna be rooting for Coach Carroll and the, <laughs> <and> the Trojans Ah. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not saying that. I think we we know pretty clear where where George K stands in that regard. But I think he'll be hoping that the the Trojans are there to be father for his his beloved Ducks. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do think yeah, but you do have they're the, by far the two biggest football brands you know on the coast here, and and yeah, you you just it'd be kind of it'd be a little deflating if it doesn't end up being. Uh, those two going at it, hopefully with one loss. So this is the Pac-12. This is what the Pac-12 does this time of year. You know, it would not be shocking at all if the Pac-12 had a championship game with two teams with two losses. Yeah, you just this is what they do. Brady, great, great talk, great breakdown. Always enjoy having you on, and we'll reconvene soon on this. All right, sounds good. And we thank you. We thank you for listening to the Trojan Talk podcast. We thank you for thank you for being loyal listeners all season long. We enjoy putting it together. And we will come back next week breaking down this Cal game and looking ahead to the Friday night showdown with Colorado, which is going to be a very one-sided affair. But we will break it down nonetheless. These next two weeks are uh, good weeks for USC to get healthy and get ready for the the final games with Notre Dame, with UCLA, maybe a Pac-12 championship game. Uh, lots more on the horizon, but uh, Cal, Colorado, these are games that USC should win and could probably uh, use as opportunities to continue to rest the many injured and wounded on the team come back next week we'll break it all down and we'll find more interesting storylines to talk about we'll see you then thank you